Well, if you take your Bible and turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning to read in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteneth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And I want to read another text from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, again beginning to read it at the first verse. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of, of the mind, and whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Well, if you turn to the text that I read to you, either one, uh, I want, what I want to do this morning is take a subject rather than to expound a particular text of Scripture. Let me begin by asking some questions. What is a Christian? 
What is the Christian church? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is grace? What is faith? Now, I don't propose to deal with all of those this morning. I couldn't do it, not within my capacity. Time wouldn't permit either. What I want to do this morning is to deal with one of them. One of them that, it does seem to me, embraces the other four. The matter is that of grace. What is grace? It's variously spoken of in our world, the world in which you and I live, has hijacked a great deal of Christian language. And in doing so, it has perverted it, corrupted it, corrupted it beyond all recognition. But let me begin like this. We in Northern Ireland have become exceedingly proficient at developing little sound bites. Sound bites that sometimes can be somewhat helpful, but so very, very often they're just not at all sound. An example of that is, oftentimes you would maybe hear it even from preachers, you can take the word justified and you can divide it up into its various syllables and you can, by doing this, you can, you can actually separate exactly out from the Bible what justification actually is. And we put it like this. You've maybe heard it said, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Now you see, that's one of our little sound bites. And it's good in as far as it goes, but the fact is it just doesn't go far enough. Because the great doctrine of justification of which the Bible is, is redolent is more than that. And you would wonder how could it possibly be more than that. But in the generous favor of God, we find it to be so because it's not simply, and I do say that very carefully, it's not only the forgiveness of sin, but it's the imputing or the crediting of the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ to the believing sinner. Which means, and it is an astounding thing, that before God, those that believe, even as they live in this world, are perfect. They are perfect and yet sinners at the same time. And that would take some, something of teasing out. But that's just the fact of which the Bible teaches us emphatically. We can do the same with grace. Grace, we find, if we can put it in the little soundbite shape, it's the unmerited favour of God. But just like taking the word justified and dividing up into its various syllables, that little definition is good in as far as it goes, but it too doesn't go far enough. Because you see, a man may not have shoes on his feet, He may not have a coat on his back. He may not have bread upon his table. But until he owes something, he can't be classified or constituted a debtor. But you see, those who receive this grace are debtors. 
And to put it in the words of one of the great poets of a bygone age, Christians are debtors to mercy alone. It's of mercy that they sing. And it's grace that I want to consider with you this morning. But how do we do this? How do we even begin to adequately deal with the matter of grace when we consider it in the way that the Bible would have us to consider it? that we are debtors, those of us who received this. And those who will receive it must come from the position of a sense of indebtedness because there is nothing we can give to God. Nothing. We come with empty hands and we receive the treasure of grace. And it comes to us by faith and by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The best way, I think, I feel that we can deal with grace is to consider the person of Jesus Christ himself and to focus upon him in different ways. And I'm going to deal with him this morning in three ways, of course, as is common for the preacher to do. First, his identification with us. Secondly, his substitution as having identified with us, his substitution for us. And finally, then his indwelling of us. When we think of Jesus Christ, again, the world outside has foisted upon us its views and it's done so very arrogantly and very aggressively and sadly and very tragically so many people have given way to it that, again, the whole doctrine of the Bible, the whole teaching of the Bible concerning Jesus Christ has been perverted. Who was this person, Jesus? Well, the Bible, again, is emphatic. He is God. He is not, he's not a, a deified man or a humanized God. He's God and man in one perfect person, inseparable now for time and eternity. The Bible teaches us that God identified himself with us in Jesus Christ. He became us. The letter to the Hebrews tells us, and the old language, I think, is is rather lovely. It uses that old word that we don't use very much now. It behoved him. Or to put it in the up-to-date terms, it was necessary. In order for God to achieve his objective, it was necessary for God to do what God saw as it being necessary in order to receive sinners who were, in every sense, a contradiction to himself. God became us. He walked our world. He breathed the air that he created, ate the food that he created. Truly God and truly man in one holy and perfect person. Tempted, the Bible tells us, in all points, such as we are, yet without sin. Holy, harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners, that he might become the saviour of sinners. And the separateness, if I can put it that way, was necessary in order for him to save sinners. 
in order for him to offer a satisfaction to infinite holiness, to appease the anger of God, in order that God should look upon sinners who believe upon the name of Jesus and find satisfaction in them, as it's found in Jesus Christ. He became what he had never been before, and yet he never ceased to be what he always was, God, God the Son. But this identification wasn't simply to identify with us, again, as maybe liberalism would have us to understand, to show forth the love of God. The purpose of God is infinitely more than that. It is that, but it's infinitely more than that. God has a design for this world, a desire. And he's working that design out. He's fulfilling his purpose day by day. It's not a failure, it's a perfect success. This identification that Jesus represents to us in taking our very nature to himself, except our sin, of course, which he accepts in his death upon the cross, which we will deal with, But he identified himself with us in order to offer that satisfaction as a substitute for us, standing in our place. And the whole principle, the whole message of substitution is shot throughout the Bible. You find it in the Old Testament, again, the types and shadows and prefigurements that imagery of the Old Testament is fully realized in Jesus Christ. He became the fullness of all of that. He brings it all together. And what was represented to the saints of old in shadow and type and prefigurement is fully and truly embodied in Jesus Christ. He offered himself in this world he identifies with us that he might offer himself as a substitute for us to stand in our place so if I can put it very personally this morning to you by way of um, just a few word testimony my hope of heaven is not in any personal merit or accomplishment of my own but my trust is invested in Jesus Christ He and he alone is my hope. And I pray to God, is yours or will be yours? How do we understand the cross of Jesus Christ? How how do we do this? Well, it can be understood, of course, sentimentally. And it can be understood superstitiously. But we must return to the touchstone always, mustn't we, and return to the Bible What does the Bible teach us concerning the cross of Jesus? Well, it teaches us. It teaches us something of the holiness of God. And again, as my memory serves me, the last Lord's Day I was with you, I preached from Philippians chapter 3, and I did touch upon what I'm going to touch upon again. It deals with the character of God. For you see, the wages of sin is death. And in the truest sense, 
And we, we do say sometimes, we do teach our children, you know, there's nothing that God cannot do. Well, there are many, many things that God cannot do. He can't lie. He can't change. He can't be other than he is. And one of the things that God cannot do is he cannot accept or tolerate any distinctiveness from his own nature. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The Bible would teach us he's a consuming fire. Now, now what does fire do? What does this element of fire do? Well, fire consumes that which is consumable, doesn't it? It's a natural phenomenon. That's what it does. You're, you're, not, you're not surprised if you throw paper onto the fire and it burns or wood or coal. It destroys it. Fire ultimately destroys everything material, doesn't it? Well, God is of a pure spirit. He cannot accept or tolerate anything that is a contradiction to his own nature. But in loving kindness and in grace and in mercy, he sent his Son, the one by whom the worlds were made, the one by whom all things consist, into this world to identify with sinners and to die in the sinner's place as a substitute. How do we see the cross? Well, oftentimes we, we see it, uh, and again I must say this with great care and caution and reverence, that when we think of the cross almost invariably, almost invariably, we think only in terms of the physical suffering of Jesus. Only in terms of physical suffering of Jesus. Now he suffered, and the Bible would tell us in, in Isaiah 52, he suffered more than that of any man. The excruciating pain, the suffering, the agony, all that he anticipated in leading up to it, the event itself, unspeakable in its terror, its awfulness, he did suffer physically. But there's more behind it, isn't there? It's not just that. All awful as that was. If I may put it to you again, a series of questions. What, what do you imagine was the, the agony of those moments in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Luke tells us, who was himself a physician, that what erupted from the body of Jesus was great drops of blood, sweat, the sheer agony and anticipation of what lay before him, and he knew all the days of his conscious life here on earth. What lay before him, the cross, ever was that, that magnetism that drew him on. This perfect person being drawn to suffer this judgment, this indignation, this anger, this wrath of God to meet the terms of justice. He faced it day by day, hour by hour, lived and breathed, ate and slept. This moment that was before him. What was the agony of Gethsemane? What was it? Or... It may be that you can think or maybe remember 
something of the the utterances, the, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. The Bible has seven of them. You may be able to record some of them, be able to record all of them. But if you can record any of them and recall them, I wonder, can you think of any of the cross utterances of Jesus that relate to his physical sufferings? Now, I ask that question for a good reason, in case you think it's just a sort of a, um, a time filler. You, you see, it's unimaginable that there wouldn't be some outcry of physical anguish from this death, this most indignant of deaths. It, it was devised, I should tell you, by, by the Romans, and no Roman citizen was ever crucified. It was reserved for those other than Romans. And it was the most cruel and vindictive of deaths imaginable to humankind at the time. How many of the sayings of Jesus relate to his physical sufferings? Or before answering that, let me ask you, why is it, now please think about this, those of you who know anything about about the Bible, why is it that when it comes to the actual event of the crucifixion of Jesus, you have so little biblical data You've got the Old Testament with the, the mountainous data, the mountainous material concerning the sacrificial system that God ordained and taught through Moses. That was to reflect that which is to come. Screeds of it. But when you come to the crucifixion of Jesus and the gospel writers, there's actually so little actual data. There they crucified him. What was the event like? There's no graphic detail given. What's the idea of this? So little when there's so much graphically given to us concerning all that should come to pass, but on the day of the event, relative to this great amount of stuff, there's relatively little. Why is that? You're bound to ask a question. You have to ask a question. If you have any biblical knowledge at all, you must. It begs the question, doesn't it? What was the agony of Gethsemane? What was it? It was facing separation from the God of holiness when the Son of God is cut off. This holy fellowship existing from eternity gone by, enters into time. And in a brief moment in time, we have the Son cut off. Not a dissection of the Trinity, no, but the Son of God experiencing the true impact of hell itself. This cut off from God. This unspeakable emptiness and loneliness the evil of being separated from God what about the seven sayings 
no utterance of physical suffering, save that of the words, I thirst, which is a fulfillment of a text in the book of Psalms. We do have this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What is this message of the gospel? It's deliverance from forsakenness. Forsaken and abandoned by God. Left alone to suffer the indignation, the anger, the wrath of infinite holiness for what you are, for what you perpetuated, for what you died with. That's it. Why the silence when it comes to the very epitome of suffering in the death of Jesus? Why the silence? Relatively so. Because God wants us to look behind what was evident to the eyes of those who were the onlookers on the day of this great and supreme criminal act of humankind in the killing of the Son of God wants us to see that behind it all, to understand what the cross is all about, it's God dealing with sin, that's what it is, and dealing with it his way, and doing so utterly. That's what we understand of the cross of Jesus, isn't it? He identifies with us to offer himself as a substitute for us. That's grace. That's grace. It finds no comparison in this life. There's nothing to which you can begin to compare it. It's otherworldly. It's beyond this world. It belongs to the world of God. And God is the dispenser of it. He's the carer of it. He alone gives it. He alone receives it back to himself. And those who have been made recipients of it. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? This God has done this for his people. Ransomed us, healed us, restored us, forgiven us. We and we alone who are the people of God can sing this way. Sing to his praise. But we have manufactured for ourselves ideas and notions of one kind or another, haven't we? What can we do about all of this? We simply return to the Bible, don't we? We return to what it says. Let's supposing today it was discovered somewhere in Palestine the cross upon which Jesus died still bearing the DNA of his blood. Neil is still there. Supposing it was found still intact. And supposing it was carried to Belfast and carried up the Dublin Road and carried in here to Shaftesbury Square, Reformed Presbyterian Church, what would it mean? It would mean absolutely nothing. In the scheme of God, it would mean nothing. It was the Son of God who died upon the cross who has ransomed and redeemed sinners. It's to him that we look, not 
an image. But to him, and we look by faith, and we see the substance of the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who became us in every single solitary sense, perfectly human, and dies upon the cross as a perfect substitute. He accepts the wages of sin. He pays them. We're debtors, and we enter into his riches. For as the Bible tells us, he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. What was his poverty? He was divested, divested of his strength and his perfect humanity and his death upon the cross as he has made sin for sinners. And he accepts that fully and truly in the place of sinners. He's a sinner's substitute, the perfect satisfaction. He identified himself with us to offer himself as a substitute for us that he might dwell within us. I asked the question at the beginning, what is a Christian, what is the church, what is the gospel, what is grace, what is faith? I said I would probably answer them in a general sense in these three points, and I'll answer them in a general sense in this final one also. What is a Christian? <clears throat> a Christian is the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. That's what he or she is. Simple definition of it. How does a person become the dwelling place of God through the Spirit? By faith in Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and all about the Bible invests in that truth in him. A Christian is a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells. We are sealed with the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. That is, nothing now can separate the people of God from the love of God. They sin, and we do sin. And if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what the Bible says. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And when the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God dwells in us, then we, we pray in the Spirit, don't we? The prayers that we offer are meaningful, they're thoughtful, they're focused. And they're prayed through Jesus Christ. They're offered unto this eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This eternal Holy One is approached through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In the Bible, God dwelt first in a temporary tabernacle and then in a temple in Jerusalem. Physical Entities of the past. Now, where does God dwell? Well, He fills eternity, doesn't He? But in this world, He dwells not in temples made with hands, not in this building or anything like it, but in the hearts of men and women like you and like me, who've been brought to a place of submission, to an acceptance an acceptance that they are what God says we are, and to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's what we are. We're the dwelling place of God through the Spirit. That's why, and that's the motivation, we do not destroy the temple of God, 
with those things that we know that are destructive. Because God has redeemed us by the blood of his Son. And we are, in his eyes, precious. That's what we are. Now, it doesn't appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he shall appear, says the Apostle Paul, we shall, like, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the hope of the Christian, isn't it? That's the hope that is before us. In this world, with all that we face in it, we do understand this, that we are what we are by the grace of God, by the grace of God that has been given to us. The strength that he gives to us to resist such sins has come our way. We thank him for it. And when that grace is spurned and we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And this advocate has never lost a case yet. For he doesn't appeal to the person in the dock. He appeals to himself. And it's on that basis that Christians find their acceptance. And in Jesus Christ, their acceptance, their acceptance is a complete one. There's nothing we add to it. We can't take away from it. It is, to put it in the vernacular, a done deal. It's finished. For upon the cross was the cry of triumph. It's finished. Not he was finished, but it is finished. This whole work of redemption, the culmination of thousands of years of worship in a tabernacle in a temple by the Jews, has now been flung open to a world of sinners lost and ruined by the fallenness of Adam. And grace is offered to sinners. What is your hope, my friend? What is, what is your hope in this world? Do you have a hope that in that great day when you stand before God, the God that the world denies exists, but the God who is, the God who is for those who believe upon his name? Let me read to you this piece of poetry again. It's come to mean so much to me. It reads like this, there is a hope that stands the test of time. It lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see a matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When sufferings cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul. For I am truly home. That's a Christian testimony, is it not? That's the whole of the story, isn't it? And yet it's still being told. It must still be told. It must still be heard. For God has mandated. The gospel must needs be preached. What is grace? He identified himself with us. He offered himself as a substitute for us. And to seal us, he indwells us, who are the people of God, unto the day of final redemption, and then to receive us to himself. That's good news, isn't it? In a fallen world, 
with all its misery. That's the news we have. Let's tell it and tell it as it is.